The SaaS Universe podcast is brought to you by Efficient Capital Labs. Realize your future revenue today. Welcome everyone to the SaaS Universe podcast. Today, Joseph Abraham, founder and CEO of Startup Atom, has a virtual sit-down with Ari Khan, CEO and president of Bridgeline Digital. Bridgeline Digital provides solutions that transform the way brands interact with their customers. In other words, they enable brand marketers to build and deliver exceptional customer experiences across multiple channels. In this episode, Joseph unpacks Ari's journey as a seasoned entrepreneur to eventually heading Bridgeline Digital and the role Bridgeline plays in the larger MarkTech ecosystem. Let's get right into it. Hi, Ari. Thank you so much for joining us on the SaaS Founders Podcast. It's really nice to have you here. And it was really nice to chat with you and get to know a little bit about your story and uh, about, you know, how Bridgeline and, and, and your connection to Bridgeline happened, right? So, um, in a very interesting conference that you were sitting and, and listening to BridgeUp's presentation. So, very, very, very interesting to get to know uh, an entrepreneur, a seasoned entrepreneur. Uh, very rarely do I get to talk to a seasoned entrepreneur who's been there, done that. Um, loved the the spark on your face when you spoke about your days at IBM and, 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 and the hustling, you know, <laughs> that you did at that point of time. So I, I did see that, that, uh, that little kid, you know, show up a bit. So, <laughs> so, so welcome to the show, Ari. I mean, it, it's nice to have you. Thank you, Joseph. I'm excited to be here and I've enjoyed our conversations as well. So great. So I'm just going to cut to the chase and I'm going to ask you a very straightforward question about uh, you know, what does Bridgeline do? So, uh, and, and who is this product for? I know there's a suite of products. I know that this is targeted towards e-commerce, e-commerce um, space in, in general. But in essence, what does Bridgeline do and who is it for? Great. Well, Bridgeline helps online marketers grow their, grow their online revenue specifically. So mm-hmm. we have a suite of products that can increase traffic for a website. They can increase the conversion of that traffic into buyers, and they can increase the average order value of each one of those buyers. And our customers are generally what we describe as mid-market companies on the Mm -hmm. small end, $250 million companies, and on the higher end, $4 billion companies. We also Mm -hmm. have some enterprise software for businesses like Caterpillar and IBM and AstraZeneca, Uh, so the uh, enterprise tens of billion dollar companies also drive value from our products. Awesome. So uh, what's the story of Bridgeline? I mean, I mean, how did Bridgeline start and, and you evolved and there were pivots. So uh, uh, let's, let's delve a little bit on that and, and understand how was the journey and what are the pivots? What did the, what did the pivots happen and where are you right now? Great, great. Well, so I'm not the founder of Bridgeline. Bridgeline Absolutely. had a life before Ari. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a great Got life, it. but it was a different life. Bridgeline <laughs> started as a roll-up of digital agencies. So there was a strategy of acquiring advertising agencies in different markets and mm-hmm. to become a large global uh, advertising agency. Mm-hmm. And along the way, it had acquired some technology And it became apparent that there's a reason why most marketing agencies are not public. It's really not a good business model for public companies. But the technology was pretty uh, interesting. And Bridgeline itself 
began to pivot from being an agency into a software company, which is a major pivot, pivot both culturally, financially, in every way. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And um, so, the, so the question that I have is that, how did you join Bridgeline and when did this happen and, and how did this happen? Okay. All right. Well, as Bridgeline was making this pivot, I uh, uh, was at an investor conference after I'd sold my my first company, Fatwire, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I saw them presenting and like a typical jerk that has zero accountability, <laughs> I leaned over to the guy next to me and said, wow, man, I could fix that company in a heartbeat. I don't know what they're struggling with. I was one of the founders <laughs> of that space. Got it. Yeah, so I went home, slept like a baby, not a problem in the world as they struggled and the phone started ringing and everyone said, hey, Ari, you said you knew something about this. Why don't you come in and fix the company? Got it. I ended up telling my wife, hey, honey, we're going to invest in a company called Fatwire or called Bridgeline. I started off with like a quarter million dollars in the end. Some friends and I put in like two million bucks and Wow. Then I became the CEO. They pulled me in. (laughs) (laughs) I actually do what I said could be done. But you know what? We did it. We transformed a roll-up of agencies, which culturally is all about short-term profits. Every single project is measured down to the number of hours spent on it and what the margin is on each one of those hours. Very different to a software company that's making investments up front in research and development, right. selling products that the return on investment may be years for each sale, mm-hmm. but as an exponential growth curve and a huge bottom line margin that you know is the reason why software companies drive such high multiples on the stock market. Got it. So you mentioned about Fatfire, and so I want to just go back down the memory lane and and refresh your memory. And I want to ask you a few questions about when did this entrepreneurship bug, if I may, if I may say so, like, you know, bite you? And, and, and how did that happen? And what was the journey like from there? Okay. All right. Well, I was in graduate school and uh, doing uh, artificial intelligence and missile guidance with mm-hmm. Hughes Research Labs. And this is 1996. Mm-hmm. So the the... the there wasn't even Google yet, right? Uh, the internet industry was just getting started. There certainly was no idea of SaaS. People were still selling in the older perpetual model. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spoke with my advisor at school and, and I actually asked him, I said, hey, you know, I, I, I've got some ideas. I want to start a company, but Texas Instruments and Hughes Research Labs and these guys want me to work there. What are your thoughts? And he said, hey, you are single. You have nothing to lose. No offense, but hurry. <laughs> You're a kid with nothing to lose. No kids, no nothing. Go out there. And if you fall on your face, just get up and do something else. Got so it. I, I took that advice to heart. And I got to say, you know, I've never worked for anyone. Mm-hmm. I've always been founder of companies, CEO. And, um, and, and, I, and I've probably, you know, missed opportunities to learn from other people. But it's a lot of fun to just invest in yourself, try your hardest. There's nothing that creates success as much as challenge and just having to figure it out. And right. I've been a, a startup guy ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So let's talk a little bit about Fatwire again. So how did Fatwire happen? Because um, 
I'm I'm trying to dig in to this whole narrative of you being an uh, an entrepreneur and 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 trying to find some lessons that other entrepreneurs can learn from you. Uh, so uh, you had a very interesting exit and a good one. So how did Fatwire happen and how did the exit happen? And if you can just quickly in in briefly like explain how did sure. that journey happen? Yeah. So. Um, when we started Fatwire in 96, we had no business plan, no specific uh, uh, product we were going to build, mm-hmm. just smarts and uh, willing to speak with anyone that needed anything. Quickly right. um, received an introduction to some people at IBM and at Motorola and recognized that they both had similar needs. They had a bunch of information. They wanted to get it onto the internet, but every time they did anything, they had to get a programmer involved to program an HTML page. So we automated that. And out of those core market needs, we developed a whole company that ultimately sold to Oracle for $160 million. And one of the key things, one of the key lessons that I tell people within our team every day is you have to just listen to the customers. Don't be presumptuous. Don't think that you in out of thin air can come up with a great idea and that's going to be the one. Follow the needs of the customers. And even as a SaaS company, Bridgeline, we maintain a professional services component. It's relatively small, three or four million dollars in revenue, but it creates a relationship with our customers so that we're always hearing what their pain points are and able to drive that back into our products for more relevant innovations. Got it. So switching gears back to Bridgeline. So when this pivot happened at Bridgeline, uh, I mean, what were some of the things that you did so that the change management was effective? Because you're changing the whole strategy from being an agency uh, or, or a you know a mega agency, so to speak, to a SaaS company, right? So it's, it's a big shift, it's a big pivot. So how did that go about, and how did you actually rally people and resources to make that happen? Right, right. Yeah, it was it was very challenging, and um, not not all the people made the transition. Quite frankly, so you need to have clarity as to what the world's going to be like tomorrow for each individual, and speak in the "what's in it for me" kind of mm-hmm. mindset. So, all right, great. You know, you're working on this projects, and every day you're meeting with customers, and they're telling you what to do that day, and the next day something else. Instead, we're going to just stop, listen really hard think long-term and start building. And this is what that means for you individually. You're going to be able to be more innovative. You're not going to get bounced around back and forth all the time. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, no more going out to lunches with uh, customers and spending 400 bucks and uh, and, and so forth. Um, <laughs> so, and it was right for some people, not for others. But um, uh, But clarity as to what the new company is going to look like and how that affects everyone individually is, is critical. Otherwise people go in the wrong direction or they're disappointed and you have all sorts of problems as a result. Great. So there's a pivot that happened and there's a repositioning in the market. So how did you go get your first few customers and land your you know first key accounts? Winning the first customer is the hardest thing. Right. And <laughs> it's so hard. And uh, for Bridgeline, it was it was easier because Bridgeline already had customers that were agency style customers who were able to cross sell into those. But then as we introduced new products and we have to bring in new logos as customers for right. it, 
one of the keys is if you can find a partner and have introductions through a trusted partner, that initial customer acquisition can be much easier. And there are lots of great companies that have very formal partner programs. The most mm -hmm. formal is actually in the SaaS space. Uh, it's right. often called the marketplace or the exchange, but mm -hmm. Salesforce really innovated this with the app exchange that they have. Uh, Shopify has a great one. And in that case, your products are able to be showcased inside of this marketplace and those initial wins can happen through that. Now that's usually more of an SMB or a mid-market uh, strategy to win an enterprise customer like an AstraZeneca uh, or Caterpillar, big companies that we work with. That is a long-term sales cycle no matter what you're doing. It requires that you are face-to-face -face with key decision makers, that you have some formality in your own sales cycle, concepts like a closed plan and upfront and so forth in order to get the um, uh, keep the sales cycle going. That's a lot harder. And a lot of SaaS companies don't have to do that. But if you're selling into an enterprise there, you need to know somebody inside of that enterprise and to be able to work through the organization. Right. So there's a big, uh, you know, a myth, I would say, because I come from the enterprise world as well, you know, prior to doing what I'm doing. So the myth is that sales cycle times are longer. It's longer often only when you don't have the right kind of you know, channels or you're not talking to the right kind of people uh, or you're not trying to sell the right kind of product or the, the, the RFPs are going totally wrong. So the, the procurement is, is not, not right set, right? So uh, what are some of the things that you observed that has helped you to sell to enterprises and mid-market clients um, very effectively? Because I do see a suite of products. Um, and usually I'm, I'm excited because uh, when I see somebody having a suite of products and especially uh, you having a, this, this set of products which are in the Martech realm, it's, it's not easy to, to, to sell because at times you have to position one or the other depending on the use cases. And then, of course, you have the opportunity to cross-sell. So how do you make those complex choices of how you position yourself in the market and, and which category you want to position yourself and, and all of that? Well, you know, uh, uh, so we were very thoughtful in that positioning and in particular how we were going to be able to approach enterprises. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, we spent time up front before we started to open our mouth and potentially saying the wrong thing, understanding what their true pain points were. And the, the commonality is revenue is generally the driver for decisions, especially in enterprises. There's a saying that CEOs have two problems, revenue and everything else. <laughs> right. Very true. So we positioned our suite of products all around a core message around revenue. So mm -hmm. everything that we say is we help drive more revenue. We can grow your revenue online. Now you get their attention. Then you have to listen. What are their main challenges on the revenue side. And if they don't care about revenue for some reason, then okay, fine. Then just get out of there quickly and don't waste time because you don't have anything to sell on. But, uh, uh, and then we further break down our suite to really what we call the e-commerce 360 equation. Revenue equals traffic. How many people visit your website? Times conversion, what percentage of them buy? Times order value. What is the average spend for each one? Mathematically, that is your revenue. Mm -hmm. And we organize mm -hmm. all of our products around that. So when I was first coming up with our marketing strategy and I was interviewing um, uh, our 
ideal customer profiles, which are generally the uh, VP of marketing or VP of e-commerce. And I started speaking about the um, e-commerce 360 equation. They would say, holy cow, that's my bonus plan, Ari. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. My bonus doesn't need to increase traffic by 10% this year or something. Um, So we knew that it resonated on a personal value. And, you know, even though we're talking to AstraZeneca or some other huge enterprise, there's always a human. And it resonated with that human. And now we're speaking their language. There's a what's in it for me. There's a what's in it for the company. It's relative to their bosses and so forth. And they'll spend time with us and we can evaluate more what they need and find, in our case, because we have a large suite of products, a product that solves today's needs and then maintain that relationship. We have a whole team we call customer success about understanding tomorrow's needs and then coming back and selling something else then too. Awesome. I think, um, I, I mean, this is a, this is a great learning for, for, for me as well. Like in, in terms of you putting this whole equation and then, and selling it from there, because it's, it's very difficult to position one over the other. And usually when companies grow, then they do grow the product line, but they, they always have this challenge about what to position where. And so they always feel that it's the supply demand. And so you have one product or the other. So, I mean, yeah. I mean this is Here, like a brilliant a, approach. A concrete real world, world example of exactly what you're saying, Joseph. Mm-hmm. So we had a customer who had um, uh, great metrics and their conversion ratio on their website was 5%. And industry-wide, it was closer to... Um, two and a half percent. So they had great conversion and they had other software companies saying, Hey, we helped you get this great conversion upgrade to our pro version of our product. It's going to be great. Bridgeline has traffic and average order and conversion software. We were unique because we were able to say, if you have 5% conversion in an industry that only has two or 3%, do not touch it. <laughs> if you Got make it. any change, it's going to revert to the mean nine times out of 10 but you know what? If 5% of the people that just stumble across your website buy something, let's get more people to stumble across the website, increase your traffic. Or how about each one of those kids buy something, get them to buy more, put an uh, impulse purchase on the checkout screen. And there we're able to more easily understand the true opportunities for that site rather than having to just double down on conversion and conversion until eventually you break it and really drive value for the customer because we knew it was revenue, not conversion that their true need was. Awesome. I think this this is like one big value bomb that you just dropped. So it's like, it's really huge. I mean, great. So um, switching gears now to the suite of products. So I we, we, just, we also spoke about you acquiring companies. And so in terms of acquiring companies, uh, what's the thesis for acquisition? So what's how, how do you go acquiring companies? Okay. Okay. So we explicitly want to have multiple entree points into the market. That means having lots of products and being able to find the right one to win a new customer. Mm -hmm. We also explicitly want to reduce our own customer acquisition cost. And we can do that through cross-selling, selling new products into existing customers in addition to winning new customers. So when we look at acquisitions and as a public company, acquisitions really has to be part of your strategy. Otherwise, you should just be private and uh, right. uh, not pay the public company expenses. Um, uh, we say, all right, we care about a product that's relevant to our market segment. Does it help people increase traffic conversion or average order value on their website? And a customer base, we want to have two reasons to buy a company. Is it a customer base 
that we could sell our other software into. Thirdly, will it be easy to integrate the new company with our existing company? And we structured our whole business around this acquisition strategy. So we, on the integration side, created a dashboard that allows us to not have to integrate the business logic and the database beneath every product we acquire, but to be able to just put a common dashboard. And the dashboard, what does it do? It actually cross-sells. It informs customers about our other products and when they're going to be useful. Now we're right. integrating the customer base and driving value from that. Today, we are in a super challenging environment. I expect it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, I lived through the 2000 uh, dot com uh, bust, and we were very successful in that. I actually had a, uh, a real estate company in 2008, so somehow trouble wow. follows me, but we survived. <laughs> and, um, uh, uh, and, and, and right now, we're in December, I was talking to companies offering to acquire them at three times revenue and being laughed out of the room. And now they're coming back asking for one times revenue saying, Ari, I wish I would have taken your offer back then. It was a, 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 a bubble, not a crazy bubble for uh, valuations, but a bit of one. And when we buy companies, we're generally offering nowadays one times revenue. Last year it was two times revenue with 50% upfront, 50% two years later on an earnout that's directly proportional to the customer retention. And that model has worked very well. We did two acquisitions last year. We're very acquisitive and explicit that we expect to do several acquisitions each year. Although this year we got to wait and see what happens with the economy before we pull the trigger on anything. Caught it. So speaking of acquisitions and speaking of a suite of products, one there's there's a big, you know, belief that you have to be a platform agnostic, a technology agnostic, which means don't get locked into one ecosystem. So how do you battle that on a on an everyday basis? Well, you know, it is tricky, but at the same time, you can't be all over the place as well. So you do have to have some uh, uh, some standards as to what areas you feel you're competent in and will uh, uh, acquire in and other ones that you won't. But we look first and foremost at the uh, at the value prop way before we start looking at the technical. So is the product uh, marketed to similar customers that we market to? Uh, mid-market and enterprise businesses, does it help them drive revenue, which is explicitly what we want to do? How does it? And after we get through that, we go into the technology. And, you know, I mean, if it's put together with a bunch of duct tape and coat hangers and barely hanging together, then <laughs> we're not into catching falling knives here. We want to actually buy companies that are sustainable. But if it is a um, Java-based product versus a .NET-based product or PHP, um, we would we would be fine with that, and our engineers would be smart enough to figure out the new platform and do a great job. And we would bring in new smart people that understood a different breadth of technology. So the lower level stuff is uh, not something that would be a deal breaker at all. Got it. And so, how how much do you miss coding and uh, the whole oh. tech side of things? <laughs> I do miss it. You know, when I was writing code every day, and I'd get in the zone, and I've got a two liter of Pepsi next to me, and it's two o'clock in the morning, and I smell like yesterday, and I'm coding away. Those were great times, and I, <laughs> I I do miss it. Now I actually find myself sitting inside a Microsoft Excel, creating way too complicated of Excel spreadsheets because <laughs> of my programming heritage. Right. But I think of uh, building businesses through acquisition as an evolution up the um, 
the development uh, food chain, so to speak. When I was younger, I created company one line of code at a time. Then I uh, started building teams and my uh, I would do a good job at finding the right engineers. And I'd work my, primarily on a whiteboard, creating architectural diagrams and people would be writing those one lines of code for me and following that. And now I'm at a stage where it's more about buying businesses and combining them and having really smart architects on the whiteboard for me and then really smart engineers on the keyboard for them. Absolutely. Yes. Great. So coming back to this one intriguing question that I had. So did you, did, did baseline, I mean, uh, sorry, did Bridgeline go public uh, prior to you joining or was this after you joined? Right. No, uh, Bridgeline was public when I came in. Okay, so great. they went public beforehand. We've done public offerings since then in different financings. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Bridgeline, in that instance, though, was public already. Oh, awesome. Great. So, uh, wow, that's a, that's an interesting interesting pivot for a public company to actually change the whole stance. I mean, that that's it in itself is a big, big challenge, right? So, right, right. Well, you know, when you're taking a company out, when you're taking a company public, there's different ways to do it. You can um, use a, a, a regular IPO, like people generally speak about. And in that case, you're just raising capital from a bunch of people in, and uh, enlisting on an exchange. You can use a SPAC. So this is a special purpose acquisition company where you're rolling, you're doing a reverse merger into that. And you can do a shell, which is kind of what we did on the bridge line side, where you take a company that's undervalued, reinvest in it, and uh, and recast it in a different form. Got it. Got it. Bridge line was easier in that sense than other cases because it already had relevant customers and the services that it offered were, many of them were relevant. I mean, we jettisoned some of it and sold off even some of the business units, but um, uh, that was easier. And if anyone wanted to get on an exchange through a, a shell or an existing enterprise, I would suggest find one where you don't have to throw everything away, but you can keep most of it, especially the people. People are hard to find. Um, Got do it. it. Great. I, I loved our discussion on the the CAC and I think you didn't speak about the LTV CAC to LTV ratio, but um, you did speak about CAC a lot. So I want to, I want to like delve a little bit on that. So um, how do you actually run a business where you can lower your CAC and um, what are some of the ways that, you know, would, would really work? So I know this is a very generic advice that I'm seeking, but. Uh, sure, sure. Well, I think that understanding your customer acquisition cost, your CAC is perhaps the most important part of creating a successful SaaS company. And it is why so many SaaS companies can't get past four or $5 million in revenue. So your, um, so first of all, SaaS companies generally have what's called a cash flow trough. So their right. customer acquisition costs might be $10,000 and their lifetime value may be thirty dollars or $40,000, but that's over three or four years. So right. they don't even pay off their initial sales and marketing efforts for 10 months in that example. Uh, and they need to have the cash flow to survive that 10 months. If they sell two or three products simultaneously, that dip of cash flow gets even deeper. The more successful you are, the more money you lose for the first period of time. So you need to know your CAC to reduce the size of that dip. So here's a couple of strategies that I follow. First, 
you need to be able to sell multiple products to each individual customer. Winning a new logo, a new customer from scratch requires marketing. You need to advertise, go to conferences and so forth. Selling to an existing customer involves just making sure that your first product does what it's supposed to do and they're happy. So your CAC for winning a new customer is generally 20 or 30% of your lifetime value. But your CAC for upselling an existing customer is more like 5%. So it's much less expensive. Right? So make sure you have multiple products and you can double down on existing customers. Second of all, we do what are called Be Everywhere programs. That means find a narrow niche like ours. It's the franchise industry. It's also B2B distributors in electrical supplies and saturate that space. And don't go to the technology uh, conferences and stand there next to all your competitors. Go to the places where no one else is at. I had a real estate company once and we went to this big real estate market and we had uh, a real estate trade show and we had a booth. Nothing happened. Then we started going. We thought about who our customer was. We thought it was, oh, you know, our customers, a lot of our customers are doctors. So we went to a radiology convention. Oh, wow. Holy cow, we made great sales. But you know who made the best sales? The guy that just hung out in the hotel across the street. Because oh, wow. the real buyer wasn't the doctor. It was his, <laughs> right. husband, his wife. So they were still at the hotel. So we quit right. paying all the money for the radiology convention and just hung out at the hotel. Right. In the same way, when we're selling into the franchise space, we don't go to Frantech, the big franchise technology conference. We go to the conference where they're... Uh, meeting their other suppliers for getting cheaper corn syrup for their drinks and so forth. And we're the only software company there. And now we can meet. Be everywhere in a tiny market. You can win and reduce your CAC. If you try to be everywhere in every market, you're going to just run out of money. Oh, wow. that that's That's really amazing. Great. So what are a couple of metrics that you measure on an everyday basis, uh, Ari? What's important well, you know, to you? The LTV to CAC is a very important one. Right. And it's interesting because you don't want to be too high or too low. So LTV, lifetime value, CAC, customer acquisition costs. Um, for us, uh, we measure our lifetime value as the uh, the gross margin. So this is the uh, actual profit for the uh, product itself. So the gross profit uh, over the lifetime, which for us is generally like five years of, of each individual customer. And if you're CAC to LTV ratio is, or uh, LTV to CAC ratio is a better way to, uh, to do it, is too low. So let's say that you've got a ratio of two. So you're, um, uh, in that case, you're spending too much money on sales and marketing relative to your pro profit. On the other hand, let's say it's too high. So let's say that you're at a four or a five. So you are making... $5 in lifetime value off of $1 in sales expense. That actually is unhealthy as well. What that says is that you should take some of that profit and do more marketing, more sales, and grow more quickly. So the right ratio is generally two and a half, three, maybe three and a half, right in that three range of $3 in gross profit uh, for every $1 in sales and marketing expense. Too low. Think hard about your sales and marketing. You're not as efficient as you should be. Too high, 
invest some of that profit into sales and marketing and grow more quickly. Got it. Awesome. So I have some very quick uh, you know, rapid fire questions and uh, let's see how you do it. And if you do really well, I'm going to send you a hamper, right? So <laughs> let's see. <laughs> Great. Okay. So the, the, the first question uh, is about your favorite book. What's your favorite book and why is it your favorite book? Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to use a business book and that book is uh, Built to Last. And wow. I, that was one of the first business books that I ever read. I have uh, uh, always thought about making companies more effective than the uh, competition. And that means knowing what effectiveness is. And Jim Collins built last has, for me, been the book I grew up with. And I still build businesses around its principles. Awesome. And what's your favorite SaaS app at this point of time? Ah, my favorite SaaS <laughs> app. Well, I guess I'll go with the one that I use almost every day, which is Zoom. And it Zoom. runs great on the uh, on, on my cell phone. It runs great on the uh, uh, computer, and everybody else has it already installed, so I can put together meetings really easy with them. Got it. And what's your favorite gadget? <laughs> favorite gadget? <laughs> well, my favorite pastime is snow skiing. I love to ski, and um, I for years had uh, uh, just put on regular earbuds. And my helmet would compress them, and it would. Be uncomfortable, but I'd have to do phone calls once in a while, once in a while on the slope. So um, my wife and I don't know what brand it is. Got me a, a helmet that has built-in uh, Bluetooth uh, headsets, and I think it's oh cool. wow, nice, <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Wow. Okay, now we're getting personal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I uh, I'm, I'm probably less than six hours. And it's not because I'm a workaholic. It's just because somehow I just end up waking up and I've got something (laughs) on my mind. It might be work. It might be play, but I got to get out of bed. (laughs) Totally get it. And and the last question is, how has pandemic changed your life, uh, Ari? Um, You know, um, it has brought my my family uh, uh, much closer together. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were forced to spend a lot of time together to discover what we really loved about each other and uh, it accelerated that bonding that I think is, uh, is really been uh, very positive. Awesome. So going back to the bridge line story, I just have one last question and then I have a last question for the podcast. So there are two questions. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So, so in terms of, um, you know, you building this whole MarTech suite. So what do you think is the future of MarTech? Because um, I, I keep seeing this this whole MarTech map that Scott Brinker, you know, brings, oh, yeah. brings out every single year, right? There's a big map and, 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 and there's a big canvas. And, uh, and so, so what do you see as is going to be the future of MarTech? Um, we've seen, we have seen personalization. We've seen a lot of different things coming out, but... Um, yeah, I think that MarTech is going to become increasingly prescriptive. And what that means is that you're going to have intelligence that understands what your needs are and prescribes solutions to you. Right now, if I have, let's say that I'm a, a, a VP of e-commerce and I need to think hard about well, what does my commerce site need? What are the different solutions that are out there? How much do they cost? Um, Instead, uh, you're going to have intelligent marketplaces that just tell you, hey, 
you need this. Here's why you need it. Here are your different choices. And then you'll be able to make those choices as well. It requires uh, significant um, uh, advances in artificial intelligence. It requires um, uh, significant advances in um, analytics and measurements. There's a lot of investment in really smart companies that are growing in those spaces. And um, the, the marketer is going to be able to think in much larger business terms and not get pulled into the weeds of which individual technology will help me today. Absolutely. Great. So this is a question I ask every single guest on the show. And this question is, uh, you know, what's something that you wish you knew when you were 20? Ah, okay. Okay. What do I wish I knew when I was 20? Well, I think that um, I grew up in a small town and I didn't understand how to uh, work with and motivate and communicate and, and uh, really inspire team leaders uh, within my teams so that right. they could be infectious without the company. Great communication skills is absolutely critical if you're going to be a business leader. You have to be a great communicator. Right. And I was an even stronger communicator when I was 20. I would have grown even faster. Awesome. Great. So it's, it was really nice, you know, conversing with you and, and, and understanding, you know, the whole story of Bridgeline and the whole story of Fatwire and, and your story as an entrepreneur. So it, it, was, it was really nice chatting with you and getting some amazing lessons from this whole, you know, conversation that we just had. Thank you so much for, for being on the show. Well, thank you, Joseph. The pleasure was absolutely mine. That's all for today, folks. Thank you for tuning into the SaaS Universe podcast. And remember, if you're looking for non-dilutive capital to help grow your business, Efficient Capital Labs is here to help. With their unique approach, you can receive up to 75% of your projected revenue as upfront capital and all within just three days. So don't wait. Head to www.ecaplabs.com to learn more and get started today. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time on the show.